0: This morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in for the past few months in the book of Exodus. Uh, And throughout, uh, we have been uh, seeing in numerous ways the way that the Exodus story really frames our story for us. That just as God's people were led out of a land of slavery and death under the leadership of Moses, brought through the wilderness where he joins to them in covenant and promises them an inheritance. That over and over again, the New Testament applies this language uh, to what Jesus is doing in the world. Leading a people for himself out of slavery to sin and death. Leading us through our, the wilderness of this world. Empowering us by his spirit and bringing us to an inheritance. That though we can't see it, is sure and surely ours. And so this morning, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 24. Uh, to kind of catch up in the story... Uh, Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai and is camped there. They've been there since roughly, uh, since Exodus 19. Uh, Moses comes down in Exodus 24, then he's going to go back up again for another several chapters. And what we're going to see is that at Mount Sinai, uh, God enters into covenant with his people. That at Sinai, Israel learns who they are and how they're to relate with God. Covenant uh, is going to be an important theme in this section, and it's not a word that we use often. Maybe if you've heard it used, it was used at a wedding ceremony. right? Because a covenant is a a contractual relationship. It's one that's rooted in promise and obligation, but it grows out of love. That everywhere that God relates to his people in the Bible, he does so by covenant. His coming down in love to his people. Uh, telling them what life with him is going to offer and require of them. And so, uh, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for this reading of God's Word? I'll be starting in Exodus chapter 24, verse 1. And then he, that's the Lord, said to Moses, "'Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nabab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord.'" But the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. And twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nabab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and ate, and drank. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law, the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out in the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, as we've said, we're picking up with Israel here at at Mount Sinai. And here, Israel uh, learns who they are. They learn what their identity is going to be with this God. They're a pilgrim people. They've been set free from slavery, and they've been brought through the wilderness and brought to this place. And here, God himself descends to meet with them on the mountain. Right, the imagery uh, that Moses uses here to describe what happens is overwhelming. Right, that, it's, that it's radiant uh, like sapphire, that it appears as though a, a fire has descended on the mountain and it's enshrouded with cloud. God descends to meet with his people and to make a covenant with them. Throughout the Bible, uh, we learn that for God to have a relationship with us, it requires God descending to us. Right, That the gap between us is so great, our gap, the gap between we, his creatures, and God is so great that without him coming to us, without him in some ways humbling himself and coming down to us, we couldn't know him. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our uh, church's uh, confession of faith, says that from the very beginning, the only way that humanity can know God is through God's voluntary condescension. Voluntary condescension. In the word the Bible gives to that, voluntary condescension is covenant. Right? This means that even before sin, right, that for God to be in a relationship with Adam and Eve, as limited as they were as human beings, it took God coming down to be with them in a covenant of life. After sin, it requires God coming to us in a covenant of grace. That God, uh, whether it was his dealings with Abraham, his dealings with Moses, that it's always and only been by his grace, his coming down to us, his stooping down to come to us, a movement that, of course, uh, finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the Word made flesh, God coming to know us. And so uh, there at the mountain, they enter into covenant with God. God comes down to meet with them, and he tells them what it's going to mean for them to meet with him. Think about verse 19 and on. They received the Ten Commandments, how they're to order their life uh, as a people of love, right, as a people that are marked out as, uh, by love of God in the first four commandments, and then the first five commandments, and then love of their neighbor in the second table of the law, that they were to relate to God and to their neighbors and to the world by love. Remember verses uh, chapters 20 and 21, uh, God gives them more detailed laws about how they're to order their worship and to order their social life, how they were to live out the ethics of love with their neighbors, how they were to look after their neighbor's property and their their neighbor's uh, person, right? These laws were given specifically to govern so that the the least and the weakest of their, their community were taken care of. Laws were given for them to care for the orphans and the poor and the widows. That God gave them this rich, ethical life about how, what that love and practice was going to look like for their neighbors and for their neighboring nations. And while ethics are crucial to Israel's life, obedience to the commandments, Israel's identity is not uh, reduced to ethics, right? They're not just to be about what they do in the world or how they love in the world and nor is ours the ethics of the faith or the outworking of something deeper. Salvation is crucial to Israel's life. Right throughout, they're described as the people who are of the exodus, the people who are set free from slavery in Egypt. But even as core as salvation is to their life, salvation isn't the central fact of their life. That they were saved not just from something in Egypt, but they were saved for something. And that that thing they were saved for is what they learn here in Exodus 24. That they were saved for communion with their God. That they were saved for the enjoyment of His presence at the very center of their life. That the ethics and the commandments work out of that communion. That life with God is what empowers them. And the salvation has always been about being saved for God to love Him, to live with Him, to worship Him, and to know Him. And friends, this is the center of our life as well, communion with the living God. Over and over again, uh, the Scriptures show us that, it's, that we are saved for communion, and that's the heart of our life. This is the core of the New Testament's theology. Right? All of Paul's uh, rich language about justification and sanctification and adoption all of that is, finds its place around his favorite way of describing the Christian life, which is life in Christ, together with Christ, Christ in us and us in Christ, enjoying communion together. All of his ethical teaching roots out what it means to live in this life as people who have communion with God and Christ. What it means to be holy is He is holy. And friends, what we see here is that a church has no life in it if it is not constantly orienting itself around its communion with God. Right? That of all of, the, all of the other wonderful things that churches do in the world, the center of our life is communion with the living God. Right? Churches have mission statements and churches have goals, churches have programs and staffing, and all of this is well and good and necessary. But what is central is not all of those things. The central fact of the church's life is that God is with us. That God is at our center. That we enjoy communion with him to give us life. That when we worship him, when we live with him, that he is with us. This is true of our life as a church. It's true of our individual lives. right? Each one of us is known by many names. right? We all have different roles and responsibilities. We are brothers and sisters and sons and daughters. We have responsibilities and jobs. We have relationships and commitments. We have opinions. We have anxieties. We have desires. But if all of those things aren't rooted in the fundamental fact of our life, that we were made for God, and that communion with Him as His sons and His daughters, as His beloved, is what defines us, then all of those other facts of our lives... Like planets without a sun at their center begin to spin off and away from themselves, that we are made for communion with God. And so, in this chapter, we're going to look uh, at our communion with God. That it's a communion enjoyed in worship, secured by sacrifice, and celebrated in a meal. First, it's a communion enjoyed in worship. Uh, So Moses uh, has been on the mountain and he now comes down. God gives him instructions to come down and to bring up with himself Aaron and Aaron's sons and the leaders of Israel to come with them back up onto the mountain. But before he does that, Moses leads the people in worship. Look at what happens in verse 4. Moses wrote, wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So Moses comes down and he does two things. He makes an altar, and then around the altar he sets up 12 pillars that represent the people, that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And this becomes a pattern of Israel's worship, both here and then later in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. That God is at the center, and then the people are around him. right? Ultimately in the temple, uh, there in the ark where God's presence dwells in the Holy of Holies, The priest would come into the temple, and on his chest, he would have uh, what's called a linen ephod. We don't don't know exactly what it looked like. But woven into it were 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes. So the idea was that in worship, the people of God came into the presence of God. Here in these primitive pillars that were built around the altar, one day in the grand temple knit on 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 the heart of the priest, that worship is the people of God, the 12 tribes, coming into the presence of God. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace, off- sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. These are two of the uh, ways that sacrifices are described in the Old Testament. Peace, uh, burnt offerings, uh, the Hebrew olah, which simply means ascending. And the idea was that this is a type of offering where the entire sacrifice, the entire animal, would be lit on fire and consumed. So it would be burnt up, every last bit of it. Now some of every offering was burnt on the altar, but this was a kind of offering that involved every piece of the offering being burnt on the altar. This is the, uh, the most common early type of sacrifice in the Bible. This is what Abel offers to God in the early pages of Genesis. We see Abraham offering this type of offering to God. And the idea is that like the smoke from the sacrifice ascends to God, so our love, worship, obedience, and devotion rises up to Him in prayer. The other is the peace offering. Uh, Both of these are offerings that will be done by the people in the temple uh, throughout the Old Testament. And the central idea of the peace offering seems to be an offer of thanksgiving a way of acknowledging to God his blessings and to return gratitude for those blessings to God. And so uh, Moses comes and the people offer the ascending burnt offering and the peace offering there is a sign of their gratitude and their devotion to God because core to their life, core to what it's going to mean to be God's people is worship. Now listen, this has been a difficult year of worship. Um, I mean, it's, it's almost head-spinning to think about it. I remember, uh, you know, I've mentioned this before, but I went back and looked at the first email that I sent out to our church, like early February of last year. We had no idea what COVID was, really. It was just something that we knew was becoming a reality. And I remember the email. Uh, it's laughable now, but it said, Hey, guys, just to be safe, we're going to take two weeks off uh, from gathered worship, Uh, while this thing blows over. That was coming up on a year ago, (laughs) right? Uh, I remember working with the staff to try to figure out how do you use the internet uh, in any kind of way to worship. I remember the first day of it, Kyle came over to our house and we basically just set a phone up in my living room. Uh, And then we just kind of built out from there to figure it out. Then we come back together Right, but the church is not entirely back together. We still have roughly, you know, half or more of our people that are worshiping at home, and, and we are delighted to continue to make those options available as people make choices uh, to protect their health, is in keeping with uh, their situation. But it's been a trying year for worship. It's been a trying year to get together. We've been separated entirely. We've been partially separated. Uh, we know that, you know. I mean, I, I, I talk to y'all, uh, so I know that there, you know, worship. It's just it's, it's, a, it's a tough one, right? It's tough to, you know, some people uh, want restrictions stricter, some people don't think they're strict enough. You know, all, all these things go on. It is uh, ultimately a, a conundrum and a test uh, that there is no right answer for. But what happens when worship goes into hard times, when we're separated from one another, when worship ceases to be at the center of a church's life, things become hard. Right? When, when the thing that we exist to do, we can, of course, continue to do. right. Even we we're worshiping at home in our pajamas and we're all separated and not seeing each other, we we're making the best of it. We're making the best of it now. We don't know how long it'll go right? until things feel like we're not even thinking about COVID. But, friends, we can't let this become an excuse or a way to minimize the vital importance of worship's role in our life. Right? This is who we are when we worship God. We're delighted that we can worship, uh, you know, that, that some of you can join us, whether it's across the street or outside or in your homes. We're delighted that you're joining us this way. Keep it up. Right? What's important for us is that we heed the words of the author of Hebrews, that we not give up or forsake meeting together in worship because it's vitally important. It's vitally important that we take this moment and root ourselves in the presence of God The church has many important relationships, right? Some of them are horizontal, right? Our relationship with our brothers and sisters and community, our our relationship with our neighbors and mission. But our defining relationship is a vertical one, our relationship with God in worship. So whether it's at home or whether it's here or wherever it is and however it is that you're worshiping, please press into it. Let's do it together because this is the center of our mission and our life. The scriptures uh, tell us that we are living stones being built into a living temple, a place where God dwells and we dwell with him, that we are a royal priesthood given to the service of God and worship him, not just for our own sakes but for our neighbors. So let's worship him as though it is the very most important thing we do all week. So it's a communion and worship and it's a communion secured by sacrifice. I love this bit of this chapter. There's twice uh, where Moses tells the people in verse 3 and verse 7 the requirements that God has for them in the covenant. And they say uh, both times, all that the Lord has commanded we will do, and we will be obedient, we will obey. Now if you are at all familiar with the Old Testament uh, and the rest of the biblical story, you might want to tell Israel to maybe chill out with the promises for a few minutes. Right, That maybe they are over-promising what they are going to, in fact, be able to deliver uh, to this holy God. What we have been commanded, every last bit of it we will do and we will obey. The sad fact of the matter is that by the time Moses, at the end of our chapter, he goes back up and we're told he's going to be there for 40 days and 40 nights. By the time he gets back down, uh, they are going to be worshipping a golden calf as an idol. Right, this generation is going to be prevented from entering into the promised land because of their faithlessness. Uh, eventually, this people is going to be kicked out of the promised land and sent into exile for their faithlessness. Their committed wills, their promised obedience, ends up in a continual story of weakness and wandering and sin. Uh, Their their, uh, assertion of obedience always reminds me of that moment between Peter and Jesus when uh, Jesus tells Peter uh, that all are going to fall away and abandon him. And Peter says, full of braggadociousness and confidence, Lord, even if everybody else abandons you, I never will. And of course, we know the rest of the story. Before the rooster crows three times, Peter denies him three times. No sooner have they gotten these words out of their mouth in verse 7. All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. Verse 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That would jar you out of your moment of confident assertion of your obedience. Your leader flinging basins of blood on you. What Moses is saying to them, what Moses is doing in this act is saying, stop. This is not that kind of covenant. Yes, your obedience is necessary, right? Your faithfulness to God's promises is necessary. Your response of gratitude to God is necessary. But it is a poor foundation for a covenant, right? If, you're, if the basis of your relationship with God Rests on your confident assertion of your goodness, of your obedience, of your righteousness, then it is a poor foundation indeed. And so Moses says it's not that kind of covenant. Your love, your obedience doesn't form its foundation. This blood forms its foundation. That it's a covenant that's secured not by your goodness, but by the merciful sacrifice of God. By God Himself looking on the blood of this covenant, looking on this sacrifice in passing over your sin, saying that the sin that, uh, that breaks the covenant in your life is laid on this animal, is laid on this creature, and so in his life for yours. It's the same in the New Testament. We can think, uh, you know, it's easy to, th- to kind of buy into this very false dichotomy that the Old Testament uh, is entirely about law and justice, and in the New Testament is all basically about love and grace. But we believe that that it's one God in the Old Testament and the New that relates to his people out of one covenant of grace. right? That the Jesus that binds us to the Father is the same Jesus whose death was, was pointed to in these sacrifices. That the blood sprinkled on the people of Israel was a placeholder for the blood of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Right, and just like their covenant did require their whole life's obedience, so does our covenant with Christ. Right, there's this incredible parallel between Moses on Mount Sinai giving the law and Jesus, when he goes up onto a mountain in Matthew five and sits down and teaches the people, right, gives the Sermon on the Mount, right? That that following Jesus, receiving life from him, does order our entire lives. It calls for obedience out of every inch of our lives. But that obedience is not the foundation of our life with God in Christ. It's this eternal communion that's sealed for us by the blood of the Lamb of God. If you don't keep that front and center, when I don't keep that front and center, I'm overwhelmed by my failure and my sin and my weakness. Uh, my life is a story of sincerely made and promptly broken promises. There's a great line in that most profound of theological movies, Top Gun. When uh, Maverick and Goose, Maverick's just gotten done buzzing the tower. You remember that? And, uh, and he appears before uh, his commanding officer. Uh, somebody will know that commanding officer's name. I don't. And uh, the guy in his gruff voice, angry at Maverick, says, Son, your ego is writing checks. Your body can't cash. Remember that line? Friends, spiritually, our ego often writes checks that our wills cannot cash. My life, uh, my ego loves to rest in my abilities, my goodness, my abilities as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, and just generally as a disciple of Jesus. And yet, uh, my life, my will, my heart cannot keep up with my promised obedience. And Jesus, just like Moses, reminds me of the blood that I am who I am when I'm trusting in the Lamb of God, when I'm allowing myself to be covered by grace, when I'm resting not in my strength or my obedience, but in his mercy. And so it's a communion sealed by sacrifice. And then finally, it's a communion celebrated in a meal. Moses now takes Aaron, Nabab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they go up onto the mountain to see God. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. I love this. That it says that they saw God. We know from elsewhere in the Scriptures uh, that no one, no one, no man or woman, can see God and live. Right? The Scriptures tell us that there's only one who's ever seen God, and that's the Son, has beheld the glory of the Father. And so Moses says that they see God, but then all that's described is his feet and what his feet are sitting on. Right? Uh, later on, Moses is going to see what we're told is the backside of God's glory. That there's this idea that they're always kind of, God's giving them a glimpse of who he is, but it's always mediated. It's always a sideways glance. It's a glance of a, a piece of a hint of his glory so that they're not overwhelmed by his holiness. And so they come and they see God. Amazingly, we're told in John chapter 1. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. It's amazing to think that Jesus gives us a clearer picture of God, a more real vision of God than Moses ever enjoyed. Right? That when we see Jesus, when we see his tenderness and his love and his righteousness and his mercy, that we see the Father in a way that's more real, more holy, more full, a picture of God's character, than even Moses ever had. And we're told that they saw God, and they ate and they drank. That would be a pretty good uh, picture of what I hope we experience in worship every time we gather, that we see God in Jesus, that we see his grace and his truth and his beauty, and then we eat and we drink. We're fed by his grace and by his goodness. Throughout the scriptures, covenants are confirmed in a meal. This idea that uh, that God wants to live in communion with us finds its confirmation in a meal. God himself breaking bread with his people. The, The worship of Israel in the temple was a meal, part of the sacrifice going to God, part of it eaten by the people. And so Moses and the people eat and drink with God, a table in the wilderness, enjoying this communion with God. Later, the kingdom of God is going to be envisioned as a a covenant meal offered for all people. Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast, a feast of rich food and a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. The meal on the mountain that here is reserved for a few, Moses and the elders. Isaiah is looking forward to a day when it will be a meal for all nations when it will be a meal that's freely offered to all of the hungry, that that's what the kingdom would be like. And this is why the meals of Jesus are such a crucial uh, part of the Gospels. Right? If you read the Gospels, sometimes it looks like the only thing Jesus is doing is eating and then going somewhere else to eat and doing some teaching and healing in between. We're told that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And this was an enacted way of saying the kingdom meal is here. The meal that includes and is open to all people, prostitutes and tax collectors and religious folk alike, is here in Jesus and is being offered. And it's why a covenant meal is at the center of our worship. I am so excited to take communion in just a few moments with you all. We haven't had communion together as a a group uh, since almost a year ago. This meal is at the heart of who you are as a Christian. We are never more who we are in Christ than when we are being fed by his body and blood. When we come to him with open mouths and open hands and say, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I need you. We are never more knit together as a family than we come together around the family table. Dirty as we are, unruly as we are. And Jesus feeds us with his very self. We taste his grace at this meal, and it's at the center of our communion with God. Sinners like you and I brought near to God in this meal. Tony Campolo tells a story of his young life. I'll read it. He says, Sitting with my parents at a communion service when I was very young, maybe six or seven, I became aware of a young woman in the pew in front of us who was sobbing and shaking. The minister had just finished reading the passage of Scripture by Paul that says, Whosoever shall eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. As the communion plate with its small pieces of bread was passed to the crying woman before me, she waved it away and then lowered her head in despair. It was then that my Sicilian father leaned over her shoulder and, in his broken English, said sternly, Take it, girl. It was meant for you. Do you hear me? It was meant for you. And she raised her head and she nodded and she took the bread and she ate it. And I knew at that moment that some kind of heavy burden was lifted from her heart and her mind. Since then, I've always known that a church that could offer communion to hurting people was a special gift of God. Brothers and sisters, hurting and sinful and hungry and thirsty, let's come to this table together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. Uh, We need your life and ours. We've received your gospel. Uh, You've sustained us by it uh, over our lives and over these many hard weeks. And Lord, we now come to you to be uh, sustained by your gospel uh, in a way that we can touch and taste and smell and, and ingest. Lord, we are a people starved for grace. We live in a world where grace uh, is so easily withheld and so difficult to give. Lord, as we come to you, we pray that you would knit us together by your mercy, that you would sustain us by your grace, that you would feed us, Lord Jesus, with spiritual food. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.